Let's go to Ephesians chapter four, verse 32. We're taking one verse out of Ephesians. Then we're gonna jump around a little bit because um, I'm doing something a little different. I want to do more of a topical study. And what I'd like to do is uh, deal with conflict resolution in the church. I'd like to deal with uh, forgiveness and confession because those are two important parts, foundation of reconciliation in the, in the church. The other day I was sitting in my office at work and I heard some loud arguing going on And I looked out the window and I saw a guy walking along the sidewalk and he was definitely involved in an argument. And I looked around to see who are you arguing with and there was no one there. Um, Nobody in front of him, nobody behind him. And I got to thinking, how, how does somebody get to that point? Now the easy answer obviously is drugs. The drugs have blown out his mind, but why is he taking drugs? And was it at that point in time that the drugs were not suppressing the conflict that he had in his past? So it's really important to deal with conflict. And it's something that uh, I want to know and become better at. And I think that it would benefit our church as well. You know, another instance of conflict that's gone awry, that has gone out of control, is the divorce rate in the country. And one of the biggest reasons listed for divorces is, quote, too much conflict. So I'd like to talk about this and start a conversation regarding this. But let's go to Ephesians 4.32 first. Uh, Now, this verse is not going to be able to, you know, it's the verse I chose, but it doesn't easily contain conflict resolution and the, uh, you know, uh, confession, that kind of thing. It's implied though. So here's the verse. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So what did God do? He forgave us. How did he forgive us? One thing we can find uh, that explains this is in Colossians 2, 13 through 14. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to. But I want you to listen to what is said and I want you to keep in mind the word debt and kind of keep that concept in your head that debt is incurred when we offend each other and we sin against each other. Primarily it goes against God, but it is also one-on-one against us as well. You remember what David said when he had his little escapade with Bathsheba. He said, you and you alone, God, have I sinned against. Obviously he sinned against Uriah and everybody else, but that was his main concern. So he had created a debt with God and this is what God does for our debt, what Christ does on the cross. 
And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision, uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. But if we look back on our verse, we see that we still need to forgive one another, which implies that we also sin against each other, that we offend each other, that we create a debt with each other. But once our debt is canceled with God, he looks at our debt this way. He says, I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. So how do we, how do we deal with this where we're to forgive, forgive one another, but we've been forgiven by God? We tend to play some games in a couple of ways with this command to forgive each other, forgive others. Uh, we pick and choose when to forgive. We can be inconsistent in implying forgiveness. Sometimes if the person's been really mean to us, we don't quickly forgive them. At times we forget to forgive. However, God requires that we have a forgiving attitude and one that is ongoing not on a case-by-case basis where we decide whether to forgive. And for proof of this, let's turn to Matthew 6, 9 through 15. This is the Lord's Prayer. We usually truncate the words, the Lord's Prayer in the fun part, the nice part, but there's a little bit of a kicker at the end. Matthew 6, 9 through 15. Now when you're looking through this, when we're reading through this, think about what God does on his own for us. But there's one part in there where we have a responsibility, where we have to do something. So Jesus says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. It's ongoing, right? And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So our part is we have to forgive our debtors. Now here comes the kicker. Here comes the fun part. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. So since we're all sinners and we've all trespassed and probably the majority or some of us, I should say, I'm not gonna say the majority, some of us probably have not forgiven others the way that we need to be forgiven, they need to be forgiven. Have we lost our salvation? Are you sure? Just to think about that, I agree with you, we have not lost our salvation, but why? At other times, we tend to minimize our sins against God and exaggerate the sins against us. So, when we have sinned, we tend to minimize it. Ah, it's just something that we we do, we made a mistake, we whatever. 
But when the sin is against us, man, it goes off the chart. We are just like, oh, wow, that is the worst sin of all time. I can't believe somebody did that to me. So let's read a story that, Matthew, that Jesus has in Matthew 18, 21 through 35 about what we need to do with little sins that are done against us and how we're to handle those. So Matthew 18, 21 through 35. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, no one was brought to him, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Somebody did a calculation, that's in today's dollars, that's worth $6 billion with a B. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Again, we see the word debt. And when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. So he's looking for a $12,000 return compared to the $6 billion debt that he owed. Now, you can look at that. I mean, the business I'm in, I'm, in, I'm thinking, hey, this guy is really gonna increase his net worth, right? Assets minus liabilities equals net worth. So that's what he's doing. He's trying to remove his debt. He got that removed. Now he just wants to collect some assets. Have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went out and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me and should not have you, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, here's the fun part, so also my heavenly father will do to, you, to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Pretty heavy duty stuff. So I brought up the issue about can we lose our salvation? Can we be sent to hell if we don't? forgive others from the heart. It's a little bit confusing at this point, but we need to keep in mind the difference between justice and discipline. And we are justified before God by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. So justice and discipline. We don't get off the hook just because we have been justified. We still have the effect of sin and not forgiving others. And that's where discipline comes in. And that sounds pretty scary, but 
Once we're united to Christ, nothing can undo or separate us from God. And then there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Let's get on to the discipline part. Discipline is God's ongoing action to conform us to Christ. A few verses, you don't have to turn to these verses. Psalm 94, 12, blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord. Revelations 3:19. those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Proverbs 3, 11 through 12, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him who he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. So that's where we're at. We will be disciplined if we fail to forgive other people. How do we know when we've forgiven somebody else? Well, we don't keep bringing it up. We don't dwell on it. We're like the Lord, we cast it away and we don't think about it anymore. True and sincere forgiveness is a decision, not just a feeling, and it makes four promises. I will not dwell on this incident. I will not bring up this incident again and use it against you. I will not talk to others about this incident. I will not let this incident stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. Pretty good stuff. Can we do this on our own? Probably not. So it requires that we uh, utilize the grace that, that God has given us. Okay, let's see here. You know, it's kind of interesting preaching every once in a while because little things happen, like I forgot to number my pages. And so, <laughs> so what you just heard about forgiveness is actually the last page. So, um, yeah, I, oh good, I will, I'll do that, yeah. Yeah. Okay, let's move on to uh, conflict. Conflict is part of our lives. And let me give you a quick definition of conflict. It's a difference in opinion or purpose that frustrates someone's goals or desires. That sound familiar? It's a difference in opinion or purpose that frustrates someone's goals or desires. This comes from James four, verses one through two. Quote, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? There's nothing wrong with differences. That's how God made us. It's wonderful that as a church body, we can come together and have different opinions. 
But when those opinions get out of control, when our desires take over, when we're frustrated, and I have to say, this is, this message is for me, (laughs) big time. Um, And it's one of the reasons, one of the joys of being able to preach, you get to pick your own topics. Um, So, this has been really beneficial to me, and I, I'm hoping to, to put everything into practice. But when we have conflict, there's three different ways to deal with it. We can escape, attack, or we can make peace. Obviously, what's the right response to conflict? It's an opportunity, by the way. Conflict should be looked at as an opportunity. And when you think of it that way, the first two responses, escape and attack, are not reflecting God's plan for us. Matthew 5, 9 says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So what's it look like to escape from conflict? Or also known as peace faking, right? Peacemaking, peace faking, and then attack responses is peace breaking. So escape responses, peace faking, results in suicide, flight, denial. And I don't know about you, but um, I've, I've noticed that there's a sense in the church, not just our church, but other churches, that we should be able to live without conflict. We're believers, right? we should be able to live without conflict. So sometimes when conflict happens, we wanna run away. We wanna live in denial, we wanna fly from it. But that's not really a biblical response. That's not really the way to deal with it. Attack responses, peace breaking, are on the other side of the scale, other side of the spectrum. And that is assault, litigation, and the ultimate, which is murder. So you have suicide on people that want to escape, you have murder on people that want to attack, and then everything in between. Um, Some of the peacemaking responses, the, the two that we want to look at, are you overlook sins, which is a big one, You strive for reconciliation. And then there's some others, which we won't look at right now, but negotiation, mediation, arbitration, and accountability. All of those come short of the attack response. All of them go forward to where you're not looking at the escape response, trying to get out of it. So when we go into conflict, what is our mindset? How do we look at this? There's four things we wanna look at. We wanna glorify God. How can I please and honor God in this situation? We wanna get the log out of our own eye. How can I show Jesus' work in me by taking responsibility? for my contribution to this conflict. 
gently restore, how can I lovingly serve others by helping them to take responsibility for their contribution to this conflict? And go and be reconciled. How can I demonstrate the forgiveness of God and encourage a reasonable solution to this conflict? Are you all kind of overloaded with all these steps and things now, all the things you have to do? There's a lot to it. It is a lot different than just saying I'm sorry and moving on. When you say you're sorry, it doesn't really rise to the same level of asking for forgiveness and confessing your sins. Okay, so there's an offense. You've been offended. One thing you can do is overlook the offense. Proverbs 19.11 says, a man's wisdom gives him patience. It is to his glory to overlook an offense. So what does overlooking mean? Do you just kind of ignore it? Just kind of fade out of the, hoping that your memory will just do away with it? No, that doesn't help either. If you're trying to overlook it and you're also avoiding the person, then you're not really overlooking it. So love covers a multitude of sins. Now we've talked about debt and the debt that's created when you sin. There's two ways to look at the debt. You can take payments on the debt. If somebody has offended you and there's a debt that's been incurred, you can take payments on that debt and say, um, what that means is they need to do more than they are doing to offset this, to fix it. And how do we take payments on a debt? We withhold forgiveness. We act in an unloving manner toward them, talking about them, etc. Or we can use the grace that God has given us and we can grant payments for them into, to pay their debt. So when you're granting a payment, you apply this grace and you pray for them, you act in a loving manner, you do exactly the opposite of what the other one is. You act in a loving manner toward them, not avoiding them, refusing to let the offense interfere with the relationship. So that's kind of an idea of how you overlook an offense. When not to overlook an offense. When is an offense too much that you can no longer overlook it or you choose not to overlook it? It keeps stewing in your head. What can you do? Well, you go to the other person if the offense affects your relationship. Are you avoiding the person? But some other things you wanna do to where you can't overlook the offense is, does their behavior dishonor God? And this is, you know, church discipline. Um, is their behavior hurting others? Is it hurting the offender? So those are some ideas of how you can overlook something and how you can uh, do something about the offense. What do you do when someone, I, I wanna bring this up too because this is something that uh, people will think about. What, what do you do when someone has sinned against you 
and they're not concerned about it. Maybe you've talked to them and they don't want to, they don't think there's anything wrong. They don't think they've offended you. Would you get angry with them? Would you reiterate what they've done? Um, Again, we need to look to Christ to see how he handled an offense against himself that they didn't ask for forgiveness. You remember when he was hanging on the cross? He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So that's an attitude of forgiveness that you apply to people. That's tough. That's, that's difficult to do. But again, we look back on the servant that owed so much money and he was going to get a little bit of money. We can't look at the small offenses. And when we do things like this, when we forgive with the idea that we're trying to imitate Christ, we're trying to mimic Christ, what that means is that we're glorifying Christ at that time. Now, if they do confess their sin and seek your forgiveness, then you can grant, you can grant that forgiveness. So Christ on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Then what happened at Pentecost There were 3,000 people saved, so God granted that request for forgiveness. So those are the two things, holding an attitude of forgiveness versus granting forgiveness. When we have to go to somebody and, and confront them, we confront them and we speak the truth in love. But I also want to deal with a rather sticky part of this where when you go to somebody, is it going to be 100% them and 0% you? Are you going to sit there and think it's all them and I don't have to do anything? Think about the fact that we're sinners, right? Not perfect. So here's some things to think about when you're accusing somebody else. Matthew 7, 5 says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So what does that mean? During the offense, was your tone of voice unloving? I mean, they stole your car and you responded with an unloving tone of voice. They're 95% and you're 5%, so do you still have to seek forgiveness? Being a Christian is hard. (laughs) It's tough if you wanna do it right. Did you use your tongue as a weapon? Did you try to cut them down? Did you try to elevate yourself, are you superior to them? Did you use the tongue as a weapon? Were you trying to control the other person through manipulation, persuasion, or force for your benefit? Remember last week we heard that you do nothing out of selfish ambition or empty conceit. 
this is tying that back to that. Are you using manipulation, persuasion, or force for your benefit? Here's a good one if you have Catholic upbringing. I don't mean that in a bad way, but did you use guilt to get your way? Did you break your word? Were you failing to respect authority? Did you forget the golden rule? Were you serving sinful desires? Did you desire to always be right, to be seen as righteous? Do you have a love of money or other material possessions? Did that interfere with the, the whole situation? Do you have a desire for good things that want too much and we want them too much, which the Bible identifies as an idol? So those are some things to think about when you're interacting with someone and you really want to pin it on them. You really want to say they're 100% at fault. Think about some of these issues, some of these questions. Examine yourself. Okay, so confessing sin, what does that look like? Do we say, again, I'm just, I'm sorry. Do we say, I'm sorry if I hurt you? Those are, those are good things, but they shouldn't be limited. You shouldn't be limited to just saying those things. Or let's just forget the past. Or I suppose I could have done a better job. You don't really get the true, genuine forgiveness with those kinds of statements. They still leave you responsible. They sound good, but you don't have any skin in the game, right? So it's more like you want to, you can say those things, but the magic word is, please forgive me. You hear how that's different? Hear how you're invested in that? You're admitting that you had something to do with this? There was a pastor that I, uh, uh, that I know that said, and he probably shouldn't have said this, but he, uh, when he was dealing with people, he would say things to them like, when he felt like he wasn't in the wrong and they were just accusing him of stuff, he would say to them, I'm sorry that you feel that way, right? See how empty that sounds? you're actually shifting the blame onto the person for their feelings. They're, they're not handling it correctly. I think I've heard that recently too um, from someone in our home group who I will not mention. Um, but you see how that goes? And that's not how we're supposed to act. So when we confess sin, the other thing I want to bring up is do we confess sin? What happens if you're not confessing sin on a regular basis? Is that really, do you really believe that you're a sinner? Do you really believe that you've sinned and have to confess it? Or, or what, do you, what are you saying if you, that's kind of the proof right there. Are you 
acknowledging and realizing your sin. If you never confess, then how, does, how do you know that you're dealing with it properly? You really don't. Proverbs 28, 13 says, he who conceals his sins does not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them finds mercy. (laughs) Again, there's no running from God, is there? You can't hold on to your sin and expect to prosper. So why is it so hard for us to, to do this? Any ideas? We're sinners, yeah. And pride is an ugly thing, right? And sometimes we're too proud to confess our pride. But again, God gives us release from that. God in his graciousness gives us release. First John 1 John 1.8. Now listen, listen carefully to this. You really gotta, gotta get a handle on it. If we say we have no sin, again, we're not confessing, so we're basically saying we have no sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. We make who a liar? We make God a liar. Don't want to do that. And his word is not in us. So how do we go about confessing our sins? What do we, what do, we do? Here's another list. I'll try to go slow if you want to write it down. If you want to ask me about it later, we, I'll be glad to give it to you. Here are seven parts of true confession of sin. You address everyone that's involved. So don't just find the person that you think will give you forgiveness right off the bat. Don't find the nice person if there's one nice one and one mean one, right? Address everyone involved. Avoid the qualification statements. We heard this in the Garden of Eden. Avoid if, but, and maybe. So you can qualify, you know, maybe if I wasn't in, maybe if I wasn't tired, but if I hadn't lost my job, I wouldn't have snapped at you. If you were just nicer, then we would get along. (laughs) Uh, We're sinners. Admit specifically. So when you've been confronted or when you realize that you've sinned, and this is, this is hard, we tend to want to be vague about it. But that's not gonna achieve true forgiveness. You have to admit, you have to talk about it, specifically what you did to offend the other person. Acknowledge the hurt. We don't want to do that. We don't want to hurt anybody. But we need to acknowledge the hurt. I hurt you by doing this. I'm sorry. 
but please forgive me. <laughs> this is a tough list. This is really a tough list. But again, we're looking for true forgiveness. We're looking for true reconciliation with our brother. We've been given the ministry of reconciliation, so it's vitally important that we exhibit reconciliation. Accept the consequences. I love those stories about someone who is like a murderer or a thief or, you know, and he's going to the electric chair. He's going to die. And he became a believer while in prison. And he says, I accept it. He doesn't fight it. He doesn't, you know, do endless lawsuits to avoid it. He just, I, I did it. And this is, these are the consequences. I'm okay with it. I mean, really, you know, prison or heaven, prison or heaven. But we have that option as, as believers. That's why we don't have to hang on to what's going on in this world. We can take, take the consequences. Alter your behavior, number six, alter your behavior. This is where, you know, Peter was saying, how often do I have to forgive them? Seven times seven? And Jesus said, no, 70 times seven. Sometimes it takes 70 times seven times for the person to actually alter their behavior and repent. You know, that brings up another issue. If they're not, if you don't see true repentance, what do you do? But we're to be, again, conformed to Christ, so we need to alter our behavior so it looks like Christ. And finally, after you've done all these things, ask for forgiveness. And one other thing you want to do is, if the hurt's been really deep, maybe they don't grant you forgiveness right then and there. You have to be patient to give them time to, to do that. So you might want to go back to them again. Maybe they didn't feel that your repentance or your confession was complete. You know, you're just checking in to see what's going on. But ask for forgiveness and allow time. Again, forgiveness, and you can tell people this too when you're seeking their forgiveness. You have to remember that it's a decision. It's not a feeling. It's a decision. And you're making these four promises. You can make these promises to people. Again, I will not dwell on this incident. I will not bring up this incident again and use it against you. I will not talk to others about this incident. I will not let this incident stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. And finally, we need to look at conflict as an opportunity to glorify God. God reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Okay, let's pray. Gracious Father, we... We struggle with our pride. We struggle, struggle with our self-righteousness. We don't want to look bad in front of other people. 
we qualify our confessions. We ask for forgiveness inadequately, incomplete, again wanting to protect ourselves. You sent your son to die on the cross, though, for all all of our sins. We know that when we fail to forgive others and we harbor resentment against them, that we aren't going to be able to get away with it. Because again, you want us to conform to your son. You know that by harboring and holding on to resentment and an unforgiving spirit, we know that you know that's not good for us. So we ask you, Lord, to help us understand these things. We ask you to give us true repentance from our sins, our offenses to others. We ask that you give us strength that if we know someone has something against us that we go to them. Lord, we want to glorify you. We want to honor you. We want to raise up Christ. We want the unity of the church so that the outside world can see, hey, this is, there's something going on here. We are truly unified. We can truly forgive one another and we truly confess our sins. Thank you, Lord, for who you are. Thank you that you saved us, that we have eternal life with you. The joy that exists in the Trinity you are sharing with us, and we thank you so much for that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.